Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we're continuing our series today, God's Presence Among His People, as we look at the book of Haggai, chapter 1, verses 3 to 11. And Dr. Newfeld is going to bring us a message entitled, If God is Not Among Us. There is a passage in Exodus 33 that has often led me to ponder my own ways. You know, just prior to this passage, Israel has sinned by building a golden calf and then worshiping an idol and then abandoning the true living God. And then follows a time of retribution and weeping. And then in Exodus 33 comes a word from God. Go, leave this place. Go to the promised land, but I will not go with you. You're a stiff-necked people. You rebel so easily that if I were to go with you for but a single moment, well, you'd be in danger of my anger burning against you, and I would consume you on the way. Well, everyone's overwhelmed, so what can that mean? And with that, Moses goes into prayer. It's one of the great prayers of the Bible. I'm reading Exodus 33, 15 to 16. Moses prays, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? You know, and God hears his prayer and he commits himself to making his presence known among his people. See, I have a concern that some of us are quite content to carry on our lives, our families, our religion, our church, and countless other activities in life, even though God is not among us. The greatest concern that God should be among us is often neglected by people who have forgotten what it means to walk with God. We have begun a one-week study of the book of Haggai, and to put it plainly, the book of Haggai is a prophecy given to the Jews who had come back from the captivity in Babylon. And at the start, they laid down the foundation of the temple, and they were going to rebuild the house, which was a symbol of God's presence among them. And then for about 17 years, first because enemies had infiltrated the ranks of the builders, And because of constant threats and scare tactics and intimidation, they eventually abandoned all their commitments. And then as time went on, they simply never returned to those commitments. They became content with a life without the presence of God. And a great many Christians today are in exactly that kind of a way. In an earlier part of their life, there was a zeal and a fire for the living God, and then came the things that they faced, and eventually it took away all of their zeal. And then has come a time when the words of Paul seemed so strange and so far away. Remember, Paul said in Philippians 3, verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and that I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. See, the passion for knowing Christ can get replaced by the everyday concerns of life, and so that we're not even aware of the fact that we're no longer walking with God. And it is against this background that Haggai speaks. So I'm reading now from Haggai chapter 1, verses 3 to 11. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. 
and when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Now before we begin, I want you to notice how often the text says either that the word of the Lord came to Haggai, or that Haggai himself says, thus says the Lord. That's because the message that Haggai brings are not Haggai's ideas. He is speaking on behalf of God, and for that reason, we should listen. Now, we can understand today's message by simply paying attention to those four occurrences in which Haggai mentions that God is speaking. The first mention that this is God speaking is found in verses 3 and 4. And as we have noted when we began this study yesterday, this first proclamation begins on August 29th, 520 B.C. On that day, says God, I have a question. You think it's right that you're living in your paneled, well-built houses with wood lining in your walls and ceilings while the house of God is in ruins? Indeed, it's a question of priorities. Is your house more important than the living presence of God among you? I've got a memory about that. You know, some time ago, I had a man show up in church with a gift. He was donating a television for our use in showing videos to the kids. That thing was the saddest television I had ever seen, and I knew that he had the very best of televisions in his house. What he was doing is giving the church the stuff that he was throwing away. God gets the stuff that I don't need, but all my energy is taken up in the stuff that I do need. And so, in effect, God is saying, you can't hide that stuff from me. You care nothing about my presence among you. You're quite happy if I never show up. Your entire attention is on your own house and not mine. It's plain in the way you live and in the priorities you exhibit and the way you spend your money. So that's the first proclamation. But of course, God is far from done. What then follows is that God not once, but twice commands the Jews to consider their ways. You find that command in verse 5, and then you find it repeated again in verse 7. But rather than a mere repetition, verse 5 is a command to have a good, hard look at how you're living and spending your money. And then verse 7 moves from the command of self-examination to the command to take action. So let's take each one in turn. Look again at verses 5 and 6. That's the command for self-examination. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You've sown much and harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Now, if you're not careful here, you might say, oh, what the prophet is saying is that the people are short of the necessities of life. But have a close look, and you're going to see that's not exactly what he's saying. The first command is for the people to consider how much they have sown in comparison to how much they've harvested. Now, put it in our terms, that describes the nation's gross national product. It was less than they were expecting. Their economy was growing at a far slower pace than what they had both expected and what they'd worked for. And notice carefully that Haggai is not necessarily saying that they're going hungry, but he is saying that they're not satisfied. They're left with unfulfilled expectations. Same is true with what they drank. I think, however, the telling statement is that they've clothed themselves. They had enough for clothes, but they weren't warm. 
They were earning wages, but they never seemed to get ahead. And that's to say, they were constantly working, but they were never achieving the good life. And we hear the same things today. People will say, you know, I can't believe the cost of living, the high taxes we have to pay it. No matter how hard I work, I never seem to have enough. I just don't feel like I'm getting ahead. And so this self-examination is God's question, whether all the work they produce is indeed producing the good life they're desiring. And so up till now, we've heard two proclamations from God. The first is the searching command. Do you think you're godly if you live in paneled houses while the house of God is neglected? Do you think that's godliness? Second, in spite of your paneled houses, do you feel satisfied? Have you achieved that which you expected when you started to work? It's an important question for you and I. Have you looked at your priorities? Would you think, that the way you're ordering your priorities is giving you the satisfaction that your soul desires, you need to answer that. And what's amazing to me is how seldom people ask that question today. It's amazing how often people feel unhappy and dissatisfied and unfulfilled with a deep longing in their soul, and yet nothing changes. They, they keep living by the same priorities that got them the lack they presently feel. It has been said that insanity consists in this. Find out what leads to your unhappiness and then just keep repeating it. That's what God is saying here. So what's your plan? Spend everything on yourself? How's that working out? Okay, let's go to the third proclamation. And and this passage also begins with the words, consider your ways. I'm reading now verses seven and eight. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. That is, it is time for you to get off your backside. It's time for you to act. God says it's time to change your priorities. Don't put it off forever. Do it now. Few verses encapsulate the message of the gospel better than John 3.16. It's been memorized, put on posters, painted at the front of churches, and even waved from end zones at football games. But perhaps you've never heard an exposition of this great verse as in-depth as the one Dr. John offers in his new five-message series, John 3.16. With two hours of audio dedicated to unpacking exactly what each component of this verse means for the believer, I think this series may just completely enhance and renew your appreciation for the depth of truth found in this verse. To that end, Back to the Bible Canada is offering the John 3.16 series on CD for free during the month of March. So take advantage of this limited time offer and call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca to request your free CD series today. There would have been at the time of the writing of this passage plenty of stone that was available from the destruction of the Solomonic Temple. And we do know from Ezra 3 verse 7 that at the time of the laying of the foundation of the temple, that the returning exiles had given food products to the people of Tyre and Sidon, and in return, they had purchased cedar trees from Lebanon. And so some of the building materials that were needed to reconstruct the temple had been accumulated. 
But clearly what they had begun was not enough. And given the lack of materials to complete the temple, people simply would have allowed the material to lie out in the open without anyone taking stock of all that was needed. And we also know from reading Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 15, that the, that the region surrounding Jerusalem at that time in history was actually a wooded land and that materials for building were abundant in supply. And so if they simply began with what they had, some wood from the cedars of Lebanon that had already been purchased, probably at quite a high price, and then some of the local lumber that would have been available, no doubt far inferior to the cedar from Lebanon, but all of this made it possible to finish the project now. And that's exactly what God is saying. I've given you the means to build a temple, and so you don't have any excuses for neglecting it. Now here, it's important to note that the resources that Solomon had available to him when when he built the first temple was not available to these exiles who were complaining that they had a tough time making ends meet. And of course, it is true that they were not going to build the magnificent temple that was like Solomon's, but that was no excuse. God is saying, do what you're able to do. Do that much. And that's such an important message today. I sometimes hear people complaining that because God hasn't given us the resources and skills that he's given others, they don't even begin. God simply doesn't accept that as an excuse. He is the God who determines what each person and what each culture has available to them. It's not a matter of the grandeur of the house, but the house reflects obedience to God and a longing for the living God to be found among us. In essence, what God is doing here is stripping away all excuses for for not getting going. You know, it's Proverbs 26, verse 13, which says, The sluggard says, there is a lion in the road. There is a lion in the streets. Translation, you know, for someone who's lazy or for someone who doesn't want to do something, there's always a reason never to get going. There's always a threat. There's always an excuse. But for the man and woman of faith, excuses don't matter. If God commands it, the answer is yes. Even if we don't think we have the proper resources, God will supply. His supply is enough. We live by faith. We trust that if we obey the commands of God, God will supply the resources to do all of his will. Would you notice how there is a promise that gets attached to verse 8? Use the resources I provide you with, says God, and I will take pleasure in it. He says, I will be glorified in it. That's a wonderful promise. It's not a competition that that I need to do in obedience to God, the greatest thing that has ever been done. Look, God doesn't judge us on the basis of what we accomplish in the end. God judges us on the basis of our obedience to his commands and on the basis of the resources that he has provided. Do you have great gifts available to you? Well, use them. Your gifts seem small in your own eyes. Well, use them nonetheless, for it is God who is glorified in our obedience, faithfulness, obedience, trust in God. That's what's glorifying to God, and it's his promise to us. Let's move forward then to the fourth and final declaration that God makes. And and I've got to warn you here as we examine it, some of us are going to resist this because in our own estimation, it's far too simple. So what is it? Let's start with verse 9, and as we read it, please notice the fourth occurrence of a declaration. This is a declaration that comes, you remember, directly from God. Verse 9, you looked for much, and behold, it came to little. 
And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? Declares the Lord of hosts. Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. That is to say, the reason your economy is struggling is not because of poor harvest years or because proper farming techniques were not utilized or because the price of grain was low this year. The reason why you have lack is because you refused to obey me when I commanded you to rebuild the ruined temple. I say that this is going to be difficult for some of us to accept, you know, because most of us have been trained to discount this as a possibility from the outset. And it's especially true of the science-conscious culture in which we live. Crops and fertility are regulated by annual rainfall, by the Earth's temperatures, by disease mechanisms that might exist, and so forth. We've been trained to believe that science is not a secondary cause, but that it is always the primary or the ultimate cause of all things. And so we conceive of a world which is very much like the world that was conceived of by the old deists. Do you know what I'm talking about? Deism was a philosophy which believed that God had created the world and that scientific principles in the world now operate independently of God. God may have created those scientific principles in the past, but they no longer require his input. And the old deists liked to talk about a watch, one of those old ones that had a spring in them. You'd wind up that old watch and then it would wind down on its own. And that, said the deist, is how the world operates. God has wound it up and it's now ticking down on its own. It doesn't require him. He's not even there. And truth be told, many of us today are what I like to call modified deists. That means that many of us believe that the world is running on its own, except when God performs a miracle or for that one moment when there is a miracle and God suspends the laws of nature. That is, when our crops fail, it's just science. God has nothing to do with that. When we get sick, it's just how things go. But we still pray because perhaps God will intervene and have mercy and perform a miracle. And so we think that earthquakes and floods and hurricanes and everything else is just connected to nature. It's, it's nature. So when the crops fail, it's nature. It's nothing to do with God. I call this modified deism. But it's not the God of the Bible. So might I say it again? The majority of people today, I fear both Christians and non-Christians, are modified deists. And that's why it's never occurred to them that their present difficulties has something to do with God. But in this passage, God says, when you brought home the fruit of your labors, it was I who blew your prophets away. It was I who put holes in your purse. It was I who was working so that you would never have enough. That's fascinating because, you know, way back in Jeremiah 31 and in Amos 9, those earlier prophets predicted that, that when God's people came back from their exile, that there would be an overflow of grain and new wine and olive oil and the people would mourn no more and gladness and joy would overtake them. It hadn't turned out that way. Well, God says it didn't turn out that way because I refuse to bless a disobedient people. I have withheld this from you. Did you notice that the New Testament says very much the same thing? James 4.3, speaking of our prayer life, says, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Did you know that there are many things that you would have received from God, but you're not receiving because you will not repent of your self-willed life? God does withhold blessings, lest we should think that he approves of our disobedient life. He does not. 
God says, until you take care of the obedience issue, things are going to be the way I have determined until you come to terms with me. Now, combine that thought with another thought. You know, it's in Malachi 1 verse 13 that Malachi says that even when Israel brought an offering to the Lord in those days, you know, here's what they brought. They brought roadkill, that is, animals that were killed in some fashion, or they brought lame or sick animals, ones that they didn't want to have. They kept the best for themselves and the others, the throwaways. Well, they gave that to God. And God responds in Malachi by saying, you don't understand who I am. I'm a great king. I am to be feared. Try bringing that kind of an offering, says Malachi, to your earthly rulers. See, the same principle is for us today. Just imagine the kind of neglect that we pay to the commands of God, and then imagine that you gave the same kind of neglect to the tax man at tax time. Yeah, you fear the tax man, but you don't fear God. And so says God, it was I who determined that you would never be satisfied. Now on to verses 10 and 11. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce, and I have called for a drought on the land and on the hills and on the grain and the new wine and the oil, and what the ground brings forth on man and beast and all their labors. I wonder how many of us care to hear the prophets on this matter. Did you know that so many things are lacking in your life because you will not give God first place in everything? Because you will not have God rule over you, you don't have your prayers answered. Perhaps like Haggai's day, it is time to repent. Perhaps like Haggai's day, it is time to seek the Lord afresh. John, I think it's important to, to clarify something. This whole idea of, of satisfaction and where satisfaction comes from and how we would define finding satisfaction in our walk with Christ. Yeah, I do know that in the book of Haggai, um, it is related very much to um, the land producing more than enough, that there's an abundance that's there. I mean, it's clear within this passage. We also know that uh, within the New Testament context, that we are not to think that having, you know, a full bank account means that God's blessing is upon us. Or uh, if, you know, I put God first in everything, therefore my money's going to overflow. Clearly, the Bible tells us that is not so, and we're given numerous examples wherein that's the case. However, we do know that our God will provide us with everything that we need, and we do know that James tells us that many times we do not have because we don't ask, and when we ask, we're asking amiss. We're concentrating on ourselves and not the living God. So there is a word of prophetic warning. Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series in the book of Haggai right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. It's an absolute honor to share that this month, our friends at Laugh Again are celebrating their 10th anniversary a decade of wisdom-packed stories knit together with family-friendly humor that always directs hearts and eyes back to Jesus. If you haven't already, head over to laughagain.ca and dive into the wide array of resources available, all which provide encouragement in your walk with Jesus. Tune in to Phil's popular Take 5 series, or check out resources like Four Minutes for Frazzled Families, a devotional booklet for the whole family, Visit laughagain.ca and when you're there, consider blessing Laugh Again with a financial gift to help pave the way for 10 more years of sharing hope and joy in your walk with Jesus.